0: Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message.
1: Today's scripture is from the book of Genesis, chapter 39, 39. Verses 6b through 20a. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him saying this is how your slave treated me he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word.
0: Before I begin I just want to say a quick word of thanks. Last week, uh, after Sunday, I was given a big packet of cards uh, that members of the church had written words of encouragement and uh, affirmation, and, and I really don't know how the word went out because I wasn't just me as all the pastors received this this wonderful packet of cards, and I thought, there wasn't a church announcement about it. I hadn't made it, so I'm not sure how the word got out, but I wanted to thank you for uh, your words. There are so many of you who wrote notes of encouragement to us and, you know, I feel blessed. We all feel blessed as pastors to serve such such a great and wonderful church. I just wanted to say that very quickly. Um, And today we're talking about Joseph. And as we all know, Joseph was a dreamer. Jamelin talked last week about some of the big dreams he had as a young man. And not only did he dream big dreams, but he had this uncanny ability to interpret other people's dreams. And so we thought when we were kind of, you know, Designing this series, you thought, oh, it'll be fun. We'll call it Living the Dream. And so I actually did like a little Google search of those words, live in the dream. The, the Im- first image that come up said so me, mean, like I was expecting to find images like people sitting on beaches, enjoying the sun, you know, kind of like living the high life. No, the first image that pops up is Will Ferrell from Wedding Crashers yelling at his ma for meatloaf. If you don't know the scene, it's a funny one, you can Google it. You know, like he's living the dream. Ma, bring me my meatloaf. Like that's, and then it goes downhill from there. Actually, you know, most of the images I saw were sarcastic. People in dead-end jobs and soul-crushing cubicles and parents overwhelmed with the stress, and people cleaning up nasty messes, and Homer Simpson laying on the couch, and then some guy who looks uncannily like the Homer Simpson, both with the same caption, living the dream. One of the ones I found, this is probably the most depressing. Someone took the, the word dream and made an acronym out of it. They broke it down this way. It said, dead inside, reconsidering my career, eating everything, a complete mess, mentally unstable. Not really living the dream, obviously. But then I started thinking, well, you know, let's just imagine if Joseph had had an Instagram account, Thousands of years ago, he probably would have done the same. He would have thrown up a picture of being thrown down in a well by his own brothers, living the dream. Or maybe when he got captured and sexually entrapped by one, by complete and total control and power over him, living the dream. Or maybe when he was thrown into prison, even though he had done nothing wrong, living the dream. The thing is, I, th- I think these experiences they had to be especially bitter. For Joseph, because he did have big dreams for his life. I mean, as a young man, he had dreams of like, you know, all of his brothers bowing down to him, and even the sun, moon, and stars bowing down for him. And he was convinced these weren't just, you know, idle fantasies and daydreams, these were visions given by God. He was destined for great things. And so you can imagine as he sat languishing in a prison cell in Egypt for years on end, how he must have thought back on those dreams with such bitterness and regret. I mean, he was as far away as he could possibly be from the dreams he once had. Except he wasn't. We know that, Joseph did know that, but we know that, that actually Joseph was in the exact place he needed to be in that prison cell in order to get connected to the right people who would one day connect him with Pharaoh, who in some way his dreams were going to come true in ways that he never could have imagined. But in this moment in his story, he can't yet see it. And yet we know, we believe, you know, looking back on it, that God was working even in the dark periods of his life in order to prepare him for the dream he'd once had. Now, I think all of us to some degree can relate in this way to Joseph. We can relate to the fact that sometimes we all have big Dreams for what life is going to turn out to be, images of, of, of what it's going to be like or, or what it's going to feel like when we arrive someday. And then sometimes the reality does not match up to the dream. Let's take parenting, for instance. Like parenting, there are moments all the time where I'm like, this is living the dream while, you know, like no one ever tells you that, you know, how thankless sometimes the job can be, right? Or sometimes, you know, we become caregivers for our parents, And as much as we love our parents, there are moments where you find yourself doing tasks that you never would have imagined you do. This is the dream? Or sometimes we get our dream job, except we discover that our dream job really isn't that much of a dream. That we have a demanding boss or we have needy clients who make our lives miserable. Is that living the dream? Or financially, on the surface, it looks like, you know, everything's the dream. Like we have the perfect home and everything, but money is going out faster than it's coming in. And we don't know how we're going to make ends meet. Sometimes there's physical limitations. Things happen in life that like, you know, and and, and tasks that used to take no thought, you know, we used to do on our own. Suddenly now we find ourselves unable to complete them on our own without the assistance of others. Is that the dream? Have you ever had a moment where you looked at a neighbor's life? with envy, where you looked at them and thought, they have it perfect, they got it made, they're living the dream, but I'm not. If you ever had any of those experiences, then you can maybe relate a little bit with Joseph. And so the question I want us to wrestle with today is, what do we do during those moments of life where life is not a dream, where life is as far as we could imagine from the dream we had of what it was going to be like? What sustained Joseph? in that dark period of time. What is God doing in his life in those moments? And perhaps by extension, what is God doing in ours in those times? So the first thing I want us to notice about Joseph is that Joseph conducted himself with integrity no matter where he was. He was sold into slavery. And the first person who bought him was a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And, and, and within Potiphar's household... Joseph conducted himself with integrity and excellence. Everything he did, it prospered, it went well. So much so that Potiphar saw his gifting, he saw his integrity, and he put him in charge of other servants, eventually put him in charge of the whole household. And such was Potiphar's trust in Joseph that the Bible tells us that Potiphar didn't worry about a thing. The only thing he worried about is, what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? He had that kind of luxury uh, of trusting completely. In Joseph. The problem was, Potiphar's wife, as we know, took an interest in Joseph because he was handsome and well built. And she tried day after day to seduce him. Now, look again at Joseph's response. His response is one of integrity. He says, Look, my master has no concern about anything else, he's put everything that he has in my hand, he's given me his trust. He's not kept anything back from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I betray his trust? How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against not just my master, but to sin against God? He had integrity. And so he avoided, you know, not just refused uh, Potiphar's wife to dances, but he avoided her as much as he could until finally one day she caught him trapped him in a vulnerable moment inside the house where there were no other witnesses around. She became very aggressive, grabbed hold of his cloak, and Joseph felt the only way that he could get away was to to shuck out of his robe and run for it. He got away, but not really, because as the saying goes, hell hath no fury, but a woman scorned. And he had scorned the wrong woman. She took that robe and she used it as evidence. She began to spread rumors, false rumors that he had entrapped her, that he had pressed himself upon her, that he had caught her in a vulnerable moment. The whole household was buzzing about it. And then Potiphar came home and she repeated the same lies, the same story to him. And he was enraged because who's he going to believe his wife or some slave And without a word of defense or explanation, he throws Joseph into prison. Now, at this point in his story, it is fair to ask, what good was Joseph's integrity? He had integrity, but where did it get him? It got him right back in prison. In in, in preserving his integrity, he cost himself his reputation, Tony Dungy, in his book, Uncommon, offers this insight that I've always found helpful, the difference between integrity and reputation, because all of us, sometimes, we can get caught up worrying about what other people think of us, how other people see us. So Tony Dungy offers this counsel. He says, integrity is what you do when no one is watching. It's doing the right thing all the time, even when it may work to your disadvantage. Some people think reputation is the same thing. As integrity, but they are different. Your reputation is the public perception of your integrity. Because it's other people's opinions of you, it may or may not be accurate. Others determine your reputation, only you determine your integrity. He continues The great thing about integrity is that it is truly no respecter of position or wealth or race or gender. It is not determined by shifting circumstances, cultural dynamics, what you've previously achieved. From the moment you are born, you and you alone determine whether you will be a person of integrity. And when it is all said and done, my reputation doesn't matter. It's important, perhaps. But what others think of me is simply out of my control. What does matter, however, is what I think of me, my integrity. That is something I can control by taking care of the little things day in and day out when no one is watching. Potiphar's wife could destroy, and she did destroy, Joseph's reputation. She had him thrown into prison, but the thing she could not touch was his integrity. He kept that for himself. And then sure enough, when he found himself in prison, guess what? He still conducted himself With integrity, so much so that the chief jailer saw his gifts. And then what did he do? He did the same thing that Potiphar had once done. He put Joseph in charge of everything. So whether it was in Potiphar's house, whether it was in prison, or whether it was one day running the whole nation of Egypt, for Joseph, his integrity was always his guide. So the second thing after integrity, the second thing we see happening. During these dark periods of of Joseph's life, not only is God testing and forming his integrity, but God is also shaping his purpose during this period of time. One of my favorite authors is a guy named uh, Donald Miller. Uh, A decade ago, I took a deep dive, kind of read every book that he'd ever written. One of his books is called Storyline 2.0. And storyline is, it's really more of a workbook, uh, but he, he encourages you to think about your own story, but he uses the story of Joseph as a template. And in the, in, in, in so basically what he talks about is like, if you were to put on a, on a timeline, the ups and downs of Joseph's life, there are plenty of them. It was like a roller coaster. He said, but the beautiful thing about Joseph is that when he reaches the end of the ride, he's able to bring a redemptive perspective. I already like that phrase, a redemptive perspective to the negative experience of his life. And by redemptive perspective, Donald Miller doesn't mean that we take the evil things that we bless and sanction the evil things that have happened in our lives, that we call them good. They are not good. But at the same time, we can recognize that even in the lower moments of our lives, even in the things that are not good, God can bring good out of it. God can bring a higher purpose out of it, something that prepares us for a future. That's what he means by a redemptive perspective. And as he's talking about this redemptive perspective, Donald Miller quotes Victor Frankel, author of Man's Search for Meaning, and he says, suffering in and of itself is meaningless. Victor Frankel says this, we give our suffering meaning by the way in which we respond to it. The problem of life, Victor Frankl says, is not suffering. It's suffering that we can't bring a meaning to. If we, if we can bring meaning to our suffering, then it takes shape. It has purpose, you know, it, it, like, like the suffering of a sacrifice. It's only when we can't bring any meaning to our suffering. He says, that is despair. Suffering without meaning. And when we experience despair, that's the beginning of the end. And what makes Viktor Frankl's words so powerful is that he lived them as an Austrian Jew who lived through World War II, who lived through a concentration camp. And his writings uh, reflect on that time in the concentration camp. And one of the things he says is one of their survival techniques is that whenever someone new came into the camp, the first thing they did is they would give that person a job. Not a job like the captors would give. You know, the captors would give them meaning, you know, soul-crushing jobs of cleaning latrines or, or breaking rocks. He says, not that kind. We would make them responsible for another human being. Because if someone was responsible for someone else, then they had a purpose. And then if they had a purpose, then whatever suffering came their way, they had a, a, a meaning for it. Something to, to push them through it because they had a purpose they could cling to. See, the problem is not suffering. The problem is suffering when we can't bring any meaning or purpose to it at all. I read a study years ago. I, so long ago, I can't remember where I read it. And the study was about a hospital. And this hospital was, um, the, study was do, the hospital was doing the study. They were surveying their workers, and they were trying to figure out, like they were trying to get a sense of morale. Like what were the, especially they were trying to seek, like what are the roles, what are the jobs within the hospital where there's really low morale and what can we do about it? And they found one woman who, you know, in the course of their surveys, who, who stood out as an anomaly. She was an outlier. She was different from those who were doing the same job she was. So the job that she had was cleaning surgical instruments, which is a mission-critical job, Right. That, that, you know, when you go into surgery, you want every instrument to be properly sanitized, properly cleaned. And so this is a mission-critical job. The problem is, it's an incredibly tedious, monotonous job, and it took place, this cleaning did, down in the bowels of the hospital, like a place where sunlight never reached. It It was a kind of work that could crush someone's spirit and soul, except not this woman. She had this morale that she loved her job. And so the hospital wanted to understand like what set her apart from, from her peers. And she just explained, I don't know. I just, I begin every day with prayer. And in my prayer, I visualize the hospital, the, the, the operating room. I visualize the nurses and the doctors who'll be using these instruments. I, I visualize the, the person on whom these instruments are going to be used. And I just pray. I pray for the health and safety of that indiv- individual. And I pray that the work I do would bring about a positive outcome in the the life of this person. She was able to connect the most tedious, you know, job, monotonous job that she had to the overarching purpose of saving and preserving life. And having that purpose made all the difference in how she approached her work. Now, what we know about Joseph is that God had a purpose for his life. God had a purpose for every ounce of suffering that he experienced. God had a purpose. The the key is, is that Joseph had to find that purpose. And so to me, it's no surprise that everywhere he went, Joseph was put in charge of other people. Not just jobs and tasks, but he was put in charge of people. And you can see God shaping this purpose in him, that his purpose was to serve others and this is a purpose that young Joseph didn't understand right when he had those first visions of his brothers bowing down to them he thought it was all about him and about his glory but God had to teach Joseph humility and he taught him humility in Potiphar's household in slavery and imprisonment but God had to show him that God had a there was a much bigger purpose for which his life was intended So God tested and forged his integrity. God shaped his purpose. And the last, the third thing we see happening in these dark years of Joseph's life is we see him learning faith, learning to trust God in all times, in all places. Now, here's the interesting thing. If I hold up Joseph as a model of faith, we don't actually get to see how he speaks to God. You know, compared to many of the other great, you know, faith heroes of the faith we never get to see a prayer of his we never get to hear like does he pray for strength and deliverance no prayer of thanksgiving not even a a lament of like why god have you put me here We, we never get a sense of his inner dialogue with god what we do get is a sense that wherever he went god was with him I mean, it's repeated again and again and again. In Potiphar's house, for instance, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Again, the master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all he did to prosper in his hands. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sakes. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. God was with him, undeniably so. And then even when he went into prison, it wasn't like God left him. Indeed, even in prison, it continues to say, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the side of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because he could see the Lord's with this guy. In other words, there's this theme of Joseph's life that no matter where he is, he experiences God's provision and care and blessing and favor. And he learns to trust in that. So much so that when one day there's a cupbearer and a, and a baker who are in his care and come to him asking him to approach dreams. I don't think a younger Joseph would have said this, but a more mature Joseph, one who's had his heart chastened, one who's learned to trust in God, speaks with more humility. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Go ahead, tell me your dreams. And then years later, when he has the opportunity to be before Pharaoh you know, this moment where his life, his future, literally hangs in the balance on his ability to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. He doesn't reply with any sense of cockiness, you know, confidence. Oh, sure, I can interpret dreams. He says, it's not me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He witnesses to his faith even before the Pharaoh of Egypt. You see, he's come to look at his life through the prism of God's care and provision. When he finally, at the end of the story, meets his brothers, and Kim's gonna talk a lot more about this next week, but when he meets his brothers and reveals himself to them, again, you see him appealing to God's presence and work in his life. He says, don't be distressed, my brothers, or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, because you sold me into slavery. Instead, remember, God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Joseph looks back on his life. He takes a redemptive perspective to everything he's experienced. He sees in it a purpose and he ascribes that purpose to God. He says, God has sent me. God has made me. God has been active in my life the whole time. So these three, integrity, purpose, trust. They weren't just how Joseph got through the difficult season of his life. It was actually what that difficult season shaped and formed inside of Joseph. And so if you ever find yourself in a place where life is not a dream for life did not match the dream that you had for your life, it might be helpful to reflect back and say, well, okay. Maybe I need to ask instead, like, what is God forming inside me right now? How is God testing and shaping my integrity? How is God shaping my purpose? How is God teaching me faith, teaching me to trust and rely on him instead of worrying about whatever's been taken away or given to you, instead ask, how is God forming my life, my heart right now? I'll tell you a personal example. When I came to work at St. Luke's United Methodist Church, those were a difficult couple years for me. And let me just add, because I know many of you worshiped at St. Luke's with me. It wasn't because it wasn't a great church. It was just because it was a difficult transition for me. I had grown up in a small town, attended a small church, and where I was at that time was just another small town called Milroy, serving a small church, and I fit in that church like hand in glove. It was beautiful. It was a place of contentment and joy and ease for me as a pastor. Like I just, I felt really comfortable there. And so when the call, the opportunity came to go to St. Luke's, it really was for me, like when I discerned, am I going to say yes to this appointment? It was really like an Abraham moment for me, like this feeling of stepping out of what is known and familiar to me into the unknown. And when I stepped into that unknown, it was not an experience of rainbows and unicorns and every day was great. I, I really floundered for a handful of years the transition was difficult. For one, the, the church was bigger and the city was bigger than anything I knew. So I really struggled to find a sense of community and friendship. Um, I, so I, I, I struggled with the balance of work and home because the pace of ministry at St. Luke's was so much faster than the pace of a small, you know, United Methodist church. Like I, it was like, I just felt like there was always work to do. My hours were long and I really struggled to balance it. And probably the biggest thing for me Was that at St. Luke's? I was not the primary preacher. I was an associate pastor. I preached four times in my first year, and that for me felt like taking my best gift and just cutting it off. And I had—I mean, like I was—I didn't—I didn't didn't know what was what I was doing for a couple years. I really struggled, and and I was unhappy. I was at this church that was like the dream church, the dream job, the dream position. So many one of my peers would have killed to be in my spot and I was dying. I was unhappy and I was in that that bitterness and anger would come out in different places, even when I wasn't ready. Because I don't think anyone knew except my family, right? Except my wife, really. My kids could pick up on it. They were really little. Margaret had this phrase sometimes. She'd say, Dad, you have your angry face on. Like, that was my resting face. She would just see it, right? And there were days I can remember, literally, where I would pull into the parking lot. And it took everything I could just to get out of the car and to walk into the building, it, it took an act of will. And it's so hard when you're a pastor, because you can't say this stuff, right? Like, you can't tell the church you're serving, I'm not happy here. Like, it's just a hard place to be. And when I look back on that time now, I can see God was working. There was never not a moment where God was working. He was shaping during that time my integrity teaching me to just keep doing the work, one thing after another, and trusting in him, even when no one else was watching. He was shaping my purpose. It was a huge gift, actually, to not preach for a number of years because it gave me a bigger picture of what the role of a pastor is and and what the role of the church is and how I fit into the big picture. He was shaping my faith. I I learned to trust God in new ways uh, all during that stretch. And I'm convinced That all those experiences, not just the bad, but all the good too at St. Luke's, but all of it was shaping me into the person and the pastor that I am today so that I could effectively lead this church and so that God might lead from here into whatever else might be in my horizon in the future. But my point is, my point is this, is that I think this is what living the dream is like. It's not always reaching our dreams or at least not in the way we think we're going to reach them. It's not always, you know, the high life and relaxing and kicking back and enjoying every second of the ride. No, sometimes it's a grind. And sometimes it's trusting. In the midst of a difficult time, that God is still with me. That God is still shaping my purpose. God is still building my integrity. God is still teaching me to trust. And sometimes that's what it looks like to live the dream so that we can live into the bigger dream that God has for each and every one of our lives. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, gracious and wonderful God, giver of all dreams. I pray God for this morning for anyone who might feel like, you know, I'm not living the dream right now. And I don't know what particular area of their life they might be feeling far from the dream. Whether it's in relationships, parenting, whether it's in work, whether it's in physical condition. But we all have moments, God, where we wonder where you are and how you're working. But we ask, God, that in those moments you teach us to trust. You use those moments to shape our purpose and integrity, to build our character And we pray most of all, I pray for anyone who might be in that place, I pray that you give them hope. Hope to hang on, hope to keep putting one foot in the other, hope to live into the dream that you have for their lives. A dream that might be perhaps different from their dream, but a dream that is better, fuller, more life-giving than anything we can imagine. This prayer we offer, in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.